When I was a kid, we used to sing this little song. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Everywhere I go, hide it under a bushel. No, right, didn't we do that? No. Every time we have the announcement of the kingdom of God, it is no, right? I mean, this, this place ought to be the place of all of these candles glowing all the time, bringing light into the darkness of, of the world. That's who we are. And, and to be really candid, we can't afford this today. Maybe there was a time in the culture where the Bible was known and the the positions of Christianity were understood and the culture was more closely aligned to the truth of God's world, but that is not today. And we cannot afford to have any Christians with their light hiding under a bushel basket. We need every light shining if we're gonna turn back to darkness. And so I encourage you to prepare to tell your story. And, and if the whole idea of reading in public is just too frightening for you, I'm good with that. We'll find arms to help you hold your candle high. And we'll help you pronounce your story. We'll even read your story for us as long as you'll just hold the candle out there because it, it matters and it's important. This morning I'd like to take a moment to look into the book of Romans. Uh, some words that are familiar to you. Um, and spend a little more time talking about the training that is necessary to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. This is Romans eight, eighteen. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, Romans 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Verse 37. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the most difficult things I think we have to work through as Christians is the problem of evil in the world. 
In its most basic form, the question is, if God is a God of love, why is there evil in the world? Why would God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why doesn't God just solve all of our problems for us? You know, these are hard questions, and we have to admit that we do not understand all the choices God made when he created the world and when he created us specifically. But there are some things that we do know. We do understand that when God created us, he gave us the ability to make real choices, and because we can choose either good or bad, we humans have the ability to choose what is bad. I mean, that's not news, we, we know that. Any simple reading of history makes it clear that we have the ability to make really bad, evil choices. Why God gave us the ability to choose to do what is wrong, I do not know. I do suspect, however, that if you give someone a choice to love, you automatically give them the choice to not love. Otherwise, it's not a real choice. They go hand in hand. Why doesn't God keep bad things from happening? I don't know. There are a lot of things that feel bad. And yet some of the things that that feel bad to me are at some level inevitable also. I mean, we, we acknowledge that the death rate is 100%. And though we live in some level of denial frequently, uh, in our more lucid moments, we recognize that's part of how God created the world, that we assume that was a wise choice because it was his choice. But as we get older, we have to face the processes of getting older. And it's, it's all normal, common stuff, but it doesn't make it any less painful and hard. But to age is to accept limitations and change. That's, that's just how it is. I mean, Ed Swain famously says, old age is not for sissies. Um, it's true. So, so we know that the promise of God isn't that we live a pain-free existence. In fact, you know, the, the gospel says a great deal about suffering and pain. We, we hear these words of Psalm 23. We recite them. Many of us have them memorized. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Isn't that the admission that we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Is it just assume that we're gonna be there and that somehow his presence with us in those moments will be transforming and stabilizing and helpful? The eighth chapter of Romans Paul said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And if that's Paul writing, 
we have to remember he was acquainted with suffering more than most of us. This is what he wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 1. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. It seems to me that some level of suffering is normal for human life. In fact, some studies show that if we don't have obstacles to overcome, we never develop the emotional strength or, or backbone, if you will, that we need in order to get through the common struggles of life. But having spent a lot of time talking about the fact that suffering is necessary, the honest perspective of all of us is, hey, we would prefer not to suffer. I mean, I don't want to suffer. You don't want to suffer. And, and Christianity doesn't ask us to seek to suffer. If you read Paul's letters and the Acts, you recognize he ran away from as many situations as he stayed and faced. They learned about the plot of the Jews to kill him, so in the night, they got out of town. You know, if, if, if this faith was about trying to suffer, it would be a different story, but it's not that. It's not being afraid when suffering is necessary, trusting God to help us when it's necessary, but not to seek suffering. But we recognize, well, Jesus does ask us to pick up certain crosses, the crosses that are designated for us. And, and that means some of the things that we're asked to do, some of the good things that we are invited to participate in will have price tags attached to them. Some of the good we choose, well, even when we're making the choice to do it, we know it's going to cost us. If you help in these particular ways, in these situations, if you get involved with these people, there's gonna be a price to pay for that. But Christians are the folks who are willing to pay that price. We are the people who turn up when things get bad for others. We are the folks who cook meals for folks when someone in the family is hospitalized. We are the folks who watch the neighbor's kids in the middle of the night when a mom or a dad has to take another kid to the ER. We are the ones who volunteer to take the seniors to the doctor's appointment. I mean, that's the things, well, that many of us do. But there's cost to those things. And it is often those things that mark us as Christians to those who are outside the kingdom of God. If you ever listen to Vi Cheeseman's story of how her family came to this church and eventually came to faith, it's all tied up in 
her father's illness when she was a child. She was a child. Her dad was sick for an extended period of time. People in this church found out about it and took on the task of providing meals for her family. And her father, who was a little bit of a skeptic, said, those are the kind of people we want to be involved with. And they started attending the church, and that was 75 years ago. And that rewrote the story of their lives because someone picked up the cost of sacrificing for Vi's family. If we're honest, though, even, thus, even those of us who are inside the kingdom of God struggle with the unknown and the potential difficulties of life. And in the face of those, there is a temptation that creeps in that we must always guard against if we are going to live with integrity in the kingdom of God. And this is the temptation. In an attempt to eliminate costs and suffering and difficulties, it's easy to step onto the pathway of the pursuit of our own comfort above everything else in the hope of avoiding things that cause stress, discomfort, pain, or suffering. That temptation is always there. How do, I, how do I avoid this stress? How do I avoid this difficulty? How do I provide for my own comfort, maybe even at the expense of laying down the crosses I've been invited to pick up? In Mark 10, 35, there's a little story, I think, that addresses this. This is Mark 10, 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Isn't that a fascinating statement? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you to do. I feel like much of the church of North America continues to ask that question. We have our own idea how things ought to go, God. Do what we want so we can achieve our objectives. That's a misguided question from the very beginning, isn't it? It doesn't understand the proper relationships between us and our creator. It it assumes that we are the creator and he is our servant. It's a misguided question, but as honest as the scriptures are, it is the question that's asked. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? Think about the grace implied in that answer. I mean, if I'm the creator, okay, and something I created says to me, hey, do what I want you to do, my first temptation is to smack him in the head, right? I mean, you understand, I mean, how, how frustrating must it have been to Jesus for his disciples to be this clueless, to, under, to misunderstand the nature of the relationship completely? But Jesus is so gracious and so patient, and he listens. And they said to him, after he asks, what is it you want me to do for you? 
grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, clueless as ever, we're able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the 10 heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There is nothing comfortable about what Jesus did for us. He is choosing as these words are being uttered, the pathway of discomfort and pain to secure the promises of God for us. The disciples, they have a picture in their mind. They want the left and the right seats because those are positions of power, positions of comfort. In those seats, if you're sitting at the right hand or the left hand of the one who you believe will become the master of the universe, well, then all the rest of the servants will do whatever you ask because your position in proximity to the king makes you one who ought to be served. Everyone else in the banquet hall sees how important you are because you're seated at the right and the left and people defer to you. And so they're pursuing pursuing their own power, their own comfort. But this is not the picture that Jesus has in mind for his children. We have more in common with the servants in the room than those who are seated at the head table. In our banquet hall, the head table only has one seat and Jesus is already occupying it. He provides what we need. He gives us purpose and meaning. Something isn't quite right in the picture when Christians are obsessed with their own comfort. When they are unwilling to serve or sacrifice for others, their whole Christian identity is in question. And so the question I guess I want to ask is how do you train for service? I think there's only one way to train for that and it is you practice serving. You train for service by practicing serving. And this is the question that we have to ask ourselves then. Are we focused on hearing the voice of the Spirit in serving in the ways he outlines for us, or are we focused on making our lives more comfortable, less stressful, and easier? For some Christians, the pursuit of comfort has become an idol. We want comfortable homes, comfortable furniture, comfortable schedules, easy to use technology, comfortable cars, comfortable retirement plans, We even demand our children make life comfortable for us. 
And for some, comfort has become a god, something we give incredible attention to and pursue with all of our time and resources. I am not saying that you should go to the store and pick out uncomfortable furniture. I'm not saying you should grab an uncomfortable car or a cell phone you can't figure out or, or that you should try to maintain an impossible schedule. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when your pursuit of personal comfort makes you unavailable for the work of the kingdom of God, things are out of balance and you are in danger of being unproductive and fruitless. And this area, this balance between being called to pick up crosses and our own innate desire for things that are comfortable is an area that requires constant attention for us because we are so frequently out of balance and when we are, the temptation to pursue comfort increases. So often, we listen to the options just long enough to discern what's easiest for us and then proclaim that that must be God's will for what our choices are. If that's the case, how are you gonna keep from falling into the comfort pursuit trap? Who's going to help you maintain your fruitfulness? What plan do you have to make sure you stay on course? Who are you talking to about this plan? How does something as simple as your routine, well, let me say it this way. How does something as simple as regular attendance at the worship service make it less likely that you will succumb to the temptation of pursuing the most comfortable options or the temptation to try to exert control over others in manipulating ways, or the temptation to continually place yourself at the center of the universe, or the temptation to think of humility as weakness. I mean, these are temptations that confront us continually, and we need to be forewarned and forearmed in order to stand stably in the face of them. And so I ask, what's your plan? in those areas? How do you keep yourself from becoming self-centered, self-indulgent, and preoccupied with your power and position and the pursuit of comfort in this world? The transforming grace of God invites you to worship so that you can keep the example of Jesus ever before your eyes, so that you can consider the manner of his life and thereby model your life after his. He invites us to live with integrity within the relationships he has given us both in the church and in the world. And in a world as confused as ours where people are marching toward the border, where government officials are hard to trust when, an, when our friends and neighbors, even our families are so polarized, where violence is everywhere, there really is only one way forward. And we find that way in the life of Jesus, which is 
the way of the cross. Stick with that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are at times distracted, confused, and off course. And we ask that your Holy Spirit to help us as we endeavor to pursue you, to pursue fruitful lives in the kingdom of God, lives that will shine as light in dark places. Help us, Lord, when we pray your prayer that says your kingdom come to mean it. To mean, bring your kingdom, Lord, through me. Use me to be a light in this world. Enable me, strengthen me to to resist the temptations, to stay on track with you, to have my life mean something for you. Help us to that end, we pray. And make us, Lord, into the folks you desire us to be. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. May the light of your lives shine brightly in the darkness as the glory of God is reflected in your faces. To the glory of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.